Welcome to All Right in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian, Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair, and me, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker. Our featured guest today is Carl Jurgens, Professor Emeritus, former English department head, and former chair of the Creative Writing Program at the University of Windsor. Carl is the author of three books of fiction and two scholarly books from Coach House, Mercury, ECW, and the Porcupine's Quill Presses. He edited two books on painter Jack Bush and poet Christopher Dudney, plus the collaborations issue of Open Letter Magazine with Beatrice Hausner. His scholarly and creative works are published globally. Jurgens edited and published Rampike, an international journal of art, writing, and theory from 1979 to 2016, now digitally archived for free on the University of Windsor Letty Library Scholars Portal. Rampike contributors have been groundbreaking artists, writers, and theorists, including nominees and winners of awards such as the Booker, Commonwealth, Orange, Pulitzer, Dublin Impact, Giller, Trillium, Writers Trust, and Governor General's Award, among other prizes. Jurgen serves on the editorial board of Ellipse Magazine. He is a longtime practitioner and grandmaster, eighth degree black belt of the martial art of Taekwondo, so don't cross him. He recently had a chat book published by Above Ground Press featuring three stories titled Eco Blues, A Tale in Three Parts, and it has recently been announced that his work will be featured in the 2023 edition of Best Canadian Poetry. His short fiction collection, The Razor's Edge, was recently released by the Porcupine's Quill Press in 2022. And Carl lives here in Windsor, Ontario. Welcome, Carl Jurgens. Hi, thank you for having me. When and how did you first fall in love with writing? Um, I guess I... I, I uh... I discovered writing as an option, a creative option, all the way back in high school. We had a, an art teacher that was teaching us art and by the name of Alan Bevan, and he was a very cool dude. And uh, he knew Al Purdy fairly well. And um, he, uh, he told us about Al Purdy. And years later, I met Al, and he wanted to go drinking with me. And I said, no because I knew that was dangerous, because I knew how much Al consumed. Um, he once said to me that if you put all the beer I ever drank into a lake, and then you put me in a boat in the middle of that lake, I wouldn't be able to see the nearest shore. So anyway, um, I, uh, I learned from Al, Alan Bevan, uh, about Al Purdy. And um, while making visual art, I realized that you can make art out of words. And so, so I, I started doing that and it worked for me and uh, I've been doing it ever since and stuff like that. What impact has editing other authors work had on your own writing, do you think? Uh, well, I would say you can learn a lot from other authors uh, and I've, I've, I've tried to uh, swipe some of their best techniques. So I'm always looking at techniques as opposed to storyline. I wouldn't steal a storyline. That would be plagiarism. But techniques, I think, are, are wide open. Just like in jazz music, you can swipe a riff. Uh, if somebody's doing something really interesting with a, with a chord or a backup chord or something like that, 
and then uh, you can you can borrow the technique. Um, so I would I would study the techniques of these other authors, and I would also learn from their uh, what I thought were mistakes. So I would try not to do the errors, and I would uh, borrow the uh, best techniques I could see. Throughout your writing career, you have seemed to shift rather effortlessly between composing poetry and fiction. How does your writing routine differ when you're working in poetry from when you're working in fiction, or does it? Um, well, uh, poetry, uh, so far I've been lucky. Um, and uh, I got selected for the, the Best Poetry of Canada 2023 anthology, and I was quite surprised to be in that. It was edited by uh, Anita Leahy, who is uh, at Biblioasis here in Windsor. Uh, but they picked uh, John Barton as the guest editor from uh, uh, out Western Canada. And he, he, he saw my stuff uh, in TypeScript magazine and uh, he liked it. And so I said, yeah, okay, uh, if you want to include it, please feel free. And he did. Um, that particular piece that he chose was a prose poem. Um, so there's not that much difference between my prose or fiction writing and poetry if, if you're looking at that particular piece. But when I write a story uh, as opposed to writing a poem, um, it's, it's quite a bit different. A poem I, for me is a moment, uh, whereas a, a story is something that expands over a, a longer period of time. So I would look at something that um, happens in a split second it can be a moment of realization it can be uh, something that just hits you all of a sudden um, and it has to be capitalized in words that are very tightly woven so that you can share that experience with other people um, if if i'm writing a story i'm still extremely careful about the words i choose but um, i spread it over a longer piece of time the Razor's Edge, your latest release, is a great collection of connected stories, blending the past and the present, fiction and some degree of nonfiction, reality and illusion, and it's all related with a slightly dreamlike quality. You depict numerous people living on the Razor's Edge, including your narrator. How did this project come about? Did it start with one particular character, voice, or story? Well, um, that was um, a, a collection that I was working on for a little while. And I wanted to represent some of my family. Uh, and my, I, I thought I could weave in some of my personal experiences at the same time. So it was a blend of uh, personal experience and family history, um, which I'm expanding on in a novel that I'm working on right now, which will be quite a bit different. Short story collections tend not to sell as well as novels. And um, it takes uh, a longer time to unfold a novel, whereas if, you're, if you've got a collection of short stories, you've got to pack them pretty tightly. And uh, so what I do is I, I create what's, what I call a novel collection of short stories so that I can string them together, as you pointed out. Um, and then there, it, it becomes kind of novelesque with each, each story being a kind of a chapter. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. Thanks for asking. How have surviving family members or the next generation of family members been responding to the book? Um, 
Well, I have a, an auntie who uh, really likes it and another auntie who's her sister who doesn't talk much about it at all. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. Uh, my, my mom and dad and my stepmom and stepdad have both all passed away. So I can't get reactions from them. My sister hasn't had really much of a reaction. My son really likes it. Uh, so it's, it's hard to find family members who will take the time to actually read your stuff and appreciate it. I'm, I, I think I'm probably a writer's writer. I, I write writing for other writers. And so people who... Um, uh, are in the family are probably not that initiated into the writing scene. And so they don't get a lot of the tropes and things that I'm trying to pull off, you know, and, and they don't get, they don't understand some of the tricks that I've successfully pulled off. And so they, they just go, Oh yes. Okay. As a story. <laughs> and I go, well, yeah, but the technique is effing brilliant. I think, <laughs> you know, but you know that's just me. What what can I? What do I know about it? I'll wait for the critics. <laughs> and so what you do include all this autobiographical stuff, and you include uh, you've included over the years a lot about your your mom, your biological mom. So what yeah. guides your decisions about what to include and what to hold back? Do you think? Well, a lot of that was about survival and. Uh, the uh, the fact that both of my parents were refugees and uh, so I wanted to get that across and um, I had family members who died in the gulag which was parallel to the holocaust and uh, I wanted to set up a little bit of a parallel with that and I wanted to um, I'm not trying to compare horrors or the horribleness of war or anything like that I know Leonard Cohen said, let's compare mythologies. Um, I guess in a way it's co a comparison of mythologies. So I, I, I dig back into personal family history and then um, I write about that a little bit. So that's, that's probably an answer. So this collection of linked stories moves around from era to era and place to place, locations where your families lived, locations where you've lived. In the book, Windsor and the Detroit River region are presented as a place of relative calm. What impact has living in this region had on your writing? Um, well, it's Windsor has been really nice because I used to live in Toronto and it was very stressful there. And a lot of my stories were about the stresses of living in close quarters with other people. And um, the pressure there is crazy. It, it, it can drive a person bonkers. Um, then I moved to St. Marie for a while where it was more relaxing, but it was also very cold in the winter. I remember one time I was, um, it was June and I was raking my backyard and I had lots of leaves. And I, I said, oh, there's a newspaper underneath one of the bushes. I'll just get that with my rake. And I'm raking it out and trying to get it out and it doesn't move. And I go, oh, why wasn't the paper moving? And I reach under the, the bush and it's a patch of snow. This was in June. So I said, okay, I got to move somewhere south. So I, I, I looked around and I went, what's the most southerly place with a university in uh, Canada? And I went, Windsor. 
So I started applying for jobs at University of Windsor, and by luck, I, I got one. Yeah, so, yeah, that's, well, anyway, so that's, that's a partial answer. Um, Toronto was about stress, and Windsor um, inspired me um, because I met people like Alistair MacLeod here and Eugene McNamara, uh, fiction writers and poet writers, and, and, uh, and we uh, brought in people like Nino Ricci to the U University of Windsor for a writer in residence. And so um, it, was, it was a place of creativity, I found, and I, I needed that breath to catch myself so that I could tell my stories. And uh, Windsor gave me that opportunity. So I, I thank the city for that. So what projects are you working on now? Well, as I say, I'm working on a novel. I'm also working on a book about money. I just finished uh, uh, an anthology, no, uh, a collection of uh, short uh, articles for a magazine called Hamilton Arts Literary. And I just did the launch two days ago. And it was a huge launch in Hamilton. And uh, I would say about maybe uh, 70 people showed up. It was a big crowd. Uh, there were a lot of artists and writers that were there, uh, including some people that I know from uh, Windsor. Uh, the the uh, cohabit between Hamilton and Windsor. And uh, there are a lot of Windsorites that uh, sometimes live in Hamilton. Uh, I'm not sure why, but they do. And uh, it, was, it was a great event. So I, I've done work like that. And so like I've got two or three collections that I'm working on right now. One is a novel uh, and it's gonna be about family history. One interestingly enough is about a, a, a collection of uh, bits about money. So I wanna write about money because I figure there's some cash in it maybe, you know, and I gotta supplement my, uh, my retirement um, somehow when it happens and, uh, or when the book happens anyway. So yeah, so that, that, that's a couple of projects. And then I've got another set of uh, poems that I'm working on called Under the Canoe. I don't know if I'll get to it, but it's about Tom Thompson. And um, he's a member of the group of seven. The reason I wanna write about him is because he came to me in a dream one time and he was sleeping under a canoe and um, he rolled out from under the canoe and he started talking a blue streak. And I said, oh boy, if Tom Thompson talked to me like that in real life, I would have story after story or poem after poem. Uh, and so I thought, well, I better do something about that. And so maybe that's, that's on my agenda as well. So I've got three future projects happening. That sounds awesome. Well, speaking about great projects, would you like to read something from the Razor's Edge for us? Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to, yeah, I, I just, I'm wearing a watch just to keep an eye on. Oh, warning to your listeners at home. If you're buying a watch on Amazon, I learned the hard way that if it says you can swim with it, this only applies if you can already swim without it. Yeah, anyway. So. <laughs> Okay, so this is a short excerpt from uh, The Razor's Edge, and it's uh, from a story called Cinderella Peccadilla. It's, it's, it's uh, one of the early stories in the book. And uh, as a preface, this uh, very short excerpt is about a younger woman who's going through an emotional crisis while seeking her Prince Charming. Uh, so there's a kind of a Cinderella story behind it. And she's also a rock and roll musician who's hoping to get a gig at a place called The Palace. 
and she's talking about a very famous musician she knows. And uh, so I said, well, that's one prince that could easily get a gig, at, get you a gig at the palace. And I wanted to say something about how we get, how trapped we get, especially when we get locked in on sex or money. So I got back to an armored car incident that I had mentioned earlier, and I told her about how they called it the Looney Tunes chase because it was in pursuit of something crazy. And I explained that the story was related to another situation that happened a while earlier when the back door of a different armored bank vehicle suddenly burst open. This kind of thing happens from time to time. It happened in Toronto along the Gardner Expressway, and it happened on Interstate 20 in Weatherford, Texas. And it's always a big pile of money. The, the truck's backdraft sucks hundreds of thousands of dollars out the back door, and motorists go loony. They stop their cars, cause traffic jams while money floats up and down the highway or the freeway. Uh, in the northbound and southbound lanes, cross streets, east and west, people get out of their cars, grab up as many bills as they can, stuff them in their pockets. One news agency reported money flying everywhere. People raked up fistfuls. Another report said it looked like an Easter egg hunt with people bent over grabbing as much as they could and then jumping back into their cars and driving off. The armored car company is still waiting for the return of hundreds of thousands of dollars. They put ads in newspapers saying things like, if you picked up any money on the expressway, we'd appreciate its return. Your identity will be protected and you won't be charged with theft. The ads ran for about a month. You can guess what kind of response they got. Thank you, sir, for returning this $20,000 bundle. You're a gentleman. Allow me to give you a firm handshake. So I explained to Sarah that everyone gets lucky once in a while and sometimes stuff just happens. But other times we believe we want something even if it's not what we need. And so she said, I think you know what I mean. And I don't want to end up like some rock and roll Cinderella talking about it in some dive bar after midnight when the carriage and horses have disappeared and I'm back on the streets again. And she said, thanks for telling me all that. I guess I'll do laundry now. And she hung up. So part of the preface is that she was going to, she didn't know whether she should kill herself or do laundry. And so she decides to do laundry after hearing that uh, little story. Anyway, so that's that's the end of that little bit. Wonderful. Carl Jurgens, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. The book is The Razor's Edge, published by Porcupine's Quill Press, and it is outstanding and kind of outrageous it and wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a pleasure, Carl. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me on your uh, show, and I really appreciate everything you guys are doing. Our local book this week is Gas of Tank, a Canadian law enforcement odyssey, 1979-2019, to by Todd Turnovan with Matthew St. Armand. Here's a little about the book. Todd Turnovan believed in keeping things simple. Marrying his college sweetheart, studying early childhood education at Ryerson University, and spending his life as a daycare teacher. To fund his education in Toronto, Todd worked a part-time job as a corrections officer. Although he spent a few years working with kids, Todd's experience in corrections propelled him into a 30-year career with the Ontario Provincial Police. Todd used his innate cleverness and gamesmanship to outsmart the bad guys and life-hack cons into doing the right thing, to inform on each other. Todd wasn't just about policing, he sought to actually solve crimes, and he never fired his weapon at another human being during his entire career. 
In this clip, we'll hear about a jailhouse brawl that took place in 1979 right here in the Windsor Jail, just 90 days into Todd's career as a corrections officer. Here's Matthew St. Armand reading from Gas of Tank. That morning, two members of an outlaw motorcycle gang, OMG, were transported from federal custody to the Windsor Jail after being granted an appeal on their triple homicide conviction. A poet or anthropologist might have viewed the brawl as symbolic of the mood among Windsor residents who were outraged by the appeal. The Moy Avenue murders, as local media referred to the horror, occurred in January 1976. A vicious triple slaying of a middle-aged man, his 19-year-old son and the son's 24-year-old girlfriend in a home on Moy Avenue. Each had been shot, stabbed multiple times, and beaten. Seasoned detectives said it was the worst carnage they had ever seen. The murderers were eventually arrested, tried, and convicted, but the raw, painful memory was ripped open three years later, when a Windsor court decided to review the case. The Windsor jail took no chances, bringing in bomb-sniffing dogs to inspect all incoming vehicles. The prosthetic leg worn by one OMG member, having lost the limb in a motorcycle accident, was scrutinized for contraband. Additional COs were brought on shift in case an inmate attempted to elevate his status by going after one of the gang members. For their own part, most Windsor Jail inmates were excited by the visiting OMG members, like kids at hockey camp awaiting the appearance of an NHL star. Shitbags, one senior CO observed, giddy about meeting super shitbags. An OMG member in Windsor deliberately got himself arrested, so he could spend quality time with his buddies behind bars. He ended up being a fervent participant in the fracas. As I stood there in the SEG unit, the sound of the brawl grew louder, utterly unhinged as it spilled down the stairs into the area. Amid the din, I heard the voices of my colleagues, men built like brick shithouses, with voices like cement mixers, men of good humor, gargantuan thirsts for booze, quick to joke, show mercy to the meek, or administer attitudinal readjustment to those who refuse to get with the program. I replaced a clipboard on a hook by a seg cell and ran to the end of the corridor. There I beheld a trio of flailing inmates in their cheap denim jeans and low-cut canvas sneakers clashing with a gaggle of COs in their government-issued green blazers and polyester gray slacks. At such moments, my campus self peeked through the curtains and observed the sheer absurdity of how my CO self spent his time. My last part-time job, I drove a delivery car for a neighborhood pharmacy. The thing that amazed my campus self was that my CO self was comfortable in this setting. Didn't enjoy it, but somehow dealt with it. After all, the Windsor Jail was just a part-time job. My campus self had the future all worked out. So, it mused, viewing the bedlam. How the hell did I get here? Gas of Tank, a Canadian law enforcement odyssey 1979 to 2019, is available at the Walkerville Artist Collective, Storytellers Bookstore, and Juniper Books. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts, or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.